0: Hello and welcome to the Feel It to Heal It podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Kelly, and I am a clinically trained therapist, emotional wellness and life coach and healer. My mission is to help as many humans as possible feel safe to feel their feelings in order to create a life beyond their wildest dreams. Thank you for being here and let's dive in. Wow, guys, here we are. This is my very first podcast episode. I am so beyond thrilled to be here chatting with you all today. This has been a lifelong dream. My dad, from the time I was very little, always told me, Rachel, you need to have some type of talk show, radio show, something. This was before the days of podcasts being a thing. And here we are diving into all the things. So I really wanted to create this podcast because. First of all, for anyone that knows me, I have a lot to say. I'm a big talker <laughs> and I feel so incredibly passionate about the work that I do and my own healing journey, as well as helping my clients heal. And I wanted to create this space to talk about all of the healing things and also provide support for those of you that may not know a lot about healing or trauma or anxiety and really give you a space to tune in every week and get support and feel that co-regulation that I always talk about. So let's start from the very beginning. I want to share a little bit about my story today with you all and really talk about how I got to where I am in my own healing journey in hopes of inspiring you in where you're at. So from the very beginning, my life kind of started off as this foundational opportunity to go on this healing journey, both personally and professionally, because my life started off with a lot of trauma. And so it makes sense that here I am, a trauma healer, who not only works with my own trauma on the daily, continuing to heal and shift and expand and transform in creating my dream life, but also helping my clients as well. So I want to preface this with my story does include some medical trauma. So just as a little trigger warning, if anyone, um, you know, gets triggered by medical trauma, you know, feel free to Just notice what happens as you listen or pause or take breaks or even just skip that part if need be. So when I was even in the womb, so starting before I was born, because when we talk about trauma, we talk about generational trauma and what that looks like from our lineage and our ancestors and past lives and all of the things. I was already experiencing the generational trauma from my mom. She had grown up in an environment where my grandparents were babies when they had her. They were like 19, 20 years old. And there was a lot of just dysfunction and um, emotional abuse. And, you know, she had even talked about some physical abuse and it's hard because you hear your parents talk about these things. And then, you know, I also have had such a close relationship with my grandparents that it can be hard to really hear how, you know, maybe they weren't meeting all of her needs as children. But what I've learned about healing in my own journey is that none of us were actually attuned to in the way that we needed to be. And this is not our parents' faults. It's not our fault. It's just a byproduct of our society raising children in this world where we are trying to do a million things at once. We are going to work, taking care of babies, taking care of fur babies, trying to take care of ourselves. There's just a lot happening. And, you know, back in the day when babies were just held by different nervous systems, and the prime goal of that day was just to help take care of a child not, you know, not be expected to do all these other things, children got more of the attunement they needed. And it's never going to be perfect because our parents have their own nervous system that they're working with. So essentially looking back at, you know, my mom had this stored trauma in her body. And then when I was in the womb, there was also a lot of stuff happening with my family. So we had this, um, caregiver, who was taking care of my brother and sister before I was even born. And she and my mom had started developing feelings for each other. And this was while my parents were still together. My mom had never even been with a woman before. She had always been with men. And sorry, this is a one, (laughs) one challenge of recording this at home is I have three fur babies. I have two dogs and a cat. So you may hear them in the background. So bear with me. So she and this caregiver, this nanny of ours started developing feelings. And there was this, you know, inner turmoil that my mom was experiencing of like her identity, her sexual orientation, her, just these feelings that she was having. And, you know, I was experiencing all of this in the womb. And then I was born, um, my parents were still together at this point and the caregiver was still there, the nanny, she was still taking care of us. And fast forward to age two, my mom had noticed that I had a rash on my body and she took me to a doctor. The doctor said, oh, this is just a baby rash, no big deal. And she could tell by my behavior, by the way I was feeling that something was off. She could just, you know, she had that motherly spidey sense. She just knew that something was off. So she brought me back to another doctor and another one and another one. And each doctor said, oh, she's fine. It's just a rash. And she knew that it was not just a rash. So she continued to bring me to several different doctors until we found the doctor that found out that I had childhood leukemia type A-L-L. And if it weren't for my mother's persistence and relentlessness, which I have since adapted because I can be very relentless, which at times feels challenging and other times feels like one of my superpowers. So because of her relentlessness, we were able to get to the doctor that was actually able to find the leukemia before it had gotten, you know, too late or too bad. So throughout this journey, I was sick for two and a half years. So from age two to four and a half, and it consisted of a lot of chemotherapy, a lot of radiation. Um, You know, I have vivid, vivid memories of my dad chasing me around the house, trying to give me this medicine. And I would just run and run and run away from him because I knew what was coming and many, many nights of just being up sick and throwing up and just feeling awful because I had all this poison being pumped into my body and that same poison saved my life. So lots of, um, you know, mixed, not mixed feelings, but more so just lots of pros and cons, right? Like this chemo and this treatment saved my life and I'm forever grateful for it. And it, was an incredibly painful two and a half years. Very, very traumatic. And fast forward to around four, four and a half, my catheter, so I have my scar right here. Um, For those of you watching the video version of this, it's like in the shape of a heart. It's right on my chest. And this is the area that I would get medicine and food pumped into. And my dad was the one that used to change my catheter to keep it clean, to make sure that everything was okay. And one time when he was cleaning it, it got infected and I ended up getting 108 fever. So keep in mind, when you get up to the point of like 105, you can technically pass away from that. And you can also... at at that point, it's like, okay, we need to go to the, we need to go to the hospital. Like this is not okay. But I had 108. And before I was even able to go to the hospital, my dad described this memory where, and he tears up every time he tells it, because it was probably one of the most traumatic memories that he's had in his life, where he held me while he was waiting for the ambulance to arrive. And luckily the ambulance got there super quickly. It was actually a boy in my grade. His dad was the local um, firefighter and EMT. So he had shown up in a matter of minutes. And because of that, he really saved my life. But my dad was holding me in his arms and he did not know if I was alive or not because this fever knocked me completely unconscious and got to the hospital. They wrapped me in ice packs. They did everything they could possibly do to get the fever down. And it was really at that breaking point. Was I going to survive or was I not? And obviously, you know, the end of the story, I'm sitting here. So I survived. (laughs) Um, but that was, the pivotal moment in my leukemia journey that the doctor even said, you know, Rachel's a witch because if the chemo left any cancer cells, this fever, which technically is a medical um, strategy that doctors use, they use self-induced fevers to kill cancer and to kill other types of um, infection. But I apparently just brought it on to myself (laughs) and she said, Rachel's a witch. If there was any cancer left, this fever certainly killed it all. And I survived. The cancer was gone. I went for um, checkups pretty consistently every few months for five years until age nine. Cause in the cancer world, after five years, you're considered cured. And My most vivid memories of leukemia were some of the most painful times. So I had to get spinal taps every few months. And I have this image of me as like little Rachel on the table. And I, I knew the room. I knew what was about to happen. And my dad and I had this routine where he would sit in the chair next to me. He would hold out his hand. I would hold his hand and I would just start crying because I knew what was about to happen. And the spinal tap allowed the doctors to check for the leukemia, but it was also one of the most painful procedures. Um, and it had to happen pretty quickly. And as a kid, I used to call it the pinchy because it pinched my spine. It was a needle going into my spine. And so I would, I would call it the pinchy. I would cry hysterically. And If I wasn't still enough for the doctors to do what they needed to do, they had to curl me up in this ball and it felt like I couldn't breathe. And overall, it was just incredibly painful and traumatic. And my mom was always waiting outside of the door because she couldn't watch it. It was just too hard for her, understandably so. And then at the end, they would let me go to the closet and pick out, you know, my favorite doll or a toy And there was a system that the doctor had where if it was just a blood test, I would get a, um, like a sticker or a fake tattoo. But if it was a pinchy, if it was a spinal tap, I would get like one of the bigger toys. So shout out to Dr. Marcus. She was my oncologist and she literally saved my life. She was the most incredible doctor ever. Like I have such vivid memories of her office of the Mickey mouse pictures hanging on the wall. Um, Her assistant, Cindy, who was just like the sweetest nurse ever. And, you know, I remember the room where all the other kids were getting their chemo. I can, I can remember this layout of this room, like the back of my hand, because it was a room that I spent a lot of time in and people get surprised by that because they're like, oh, you were so young when that happened. You probably don't remember it. And it goes back to, you know, this idea of the body, keeping the score, our bodies always remember. And my brain also remembers a lot of it. Um, there's a lot. I also don't remember that I still to this day will like ask my dad about certain things of like, Oh, did this happen or did this happen? Um, and yeah, but a lot of it, I, I do remember. So because my life started out with this sickness, it gave me this perspective and this embodiment from such a young age of what life actually means. Because to me, it felt like the second chance. And obviously, as a four and a half year old, you know, I didn't fully understand it in those terms, but I understood that. I was in this pain and I was feeling sick for these prime years of my development. And then there was a time where I wasn't feeling sick. And so I understood that there was a difference. And I understood that the fact that I wasn't feeling sick was such a gift because my norm, all I had ever really known was feeling sickness. And right after the leukemia ended right after my treatment ended, my parents got divorced and my mom ended up basically having an affair with our nanny. And it wasn't necessarily the reason they got divorced. I think they would have gotten divorced anyway, but it was more so kind of the catalyst. Like she was kind of the catalyst that allowed my mom to you know realize that she didn't want to stay married anymore to my dad and there's so many vivid stories that you know my dad has shared of like him finding out about my mom and the caregiver and um realizing what this meant and you know he had grown up with this catholic upbringing where it's like divorce was not even an option and i think now at this point he can look back and realize like okay this was for the best and you know he and my mom were able to be like much better parents because they were happier as individuals rather than being married. But when we talk about trauma and talk about childhood trauma, it wasn't until I really studied this that I realized that I had experienced just chronic childhood trauma because right after the leukemia, parents got divorced, mom came out, and you know wanted to be with women and or not wanted to. She, she has always been, she, she identifies as bisexual. Um, But this was really the first woman that she had ever been with. So it was a big moment in her own personal journey and going through all of that. And then my mom having these series of different relationships. So she was with the nanny for a few years, then they ended up breaking up and she was then with our Current stepmom, who basically helped raise us for like eight years for the time they were together. And then to find out that the nanny then came back and they got back together again. And then after that, they broke up. And then my mom fell in love with her Zumba teacher, who was her most recent partner before my mom passed in May of 2019. So I'm gonna get into all of that at a later time because all of those relationships also really had a big effect on me and was a big contributor of me developing my anxious attachment style to my mom and to my and to my dad and to my stepmom who helped raise us. So it ties all in together. But I want to go back to for a moment this idea that because the leukemia was such this monumental experience that happened at such a young age. And it really started this, you know, perspective of what life means and what it means to feel good and to feel safe and to feel healthy. It really ended up giving me this zest for life. So my dad would always joke and say like, you don't need drugs or alcohol. You're just like high on life. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I am always high on life. I'm always just like, like I've always been able to feel just like this deep sense of gratitude. I used to literally thank my mom. Like she would put me to bed every night and every night before she said goodnight, I would say, thank you. I would say, thank you for being my mom. Thank you for everything. Thank you for dinner. Like I would just kind of list out all these things that I was thankful for. And one of my first Thanksgivings after the leukemia, we went around, we always have this tradition where we would go around and say what we're grateful for. And I just said, I'm thankful for life. And so I understood at this young age that like life was this gift, that it wasn't just this given thing. Like I would see everyone around me And it was just this, oh, life is just this given thing. And for me, it wasn't, it wasn't a given. It was, it was actually quite the opposite. It felt like, you know, life is fragile and it could end at any moment. And so life is truly a gift. And it wasn't until I really started doing this deep healing trauma work on myself that I realized that most people can't experience gratitude when they're in survival mode. Because they're in survival mode. If you're running away, like imagine running away from a bear and someone's like, just be grateful. You're going to be like, fuck off. I'm running from a bear. So we can't actually experience deep gratitude if we're in survival mode. But I think because of my experience, I always had this sense of gratitude and that sense of gratitude, just my relationship with gratitude just further deepened as I've done this healing work. Excuse the airplanes. I live right near the airport. So lots of airplanes flying by. So, because of this perspective on life and this early sense of gratitude, in a lot of ways, that allowed me to sneakily bypass my dysregulated nervous system, my stored trauma. I had been in therapy literally my whole life. My parents met in social work school. And we're both therapists and we're both school social workers. My brother's a school psychologist. I mean, it's in the, it's in the family. My sister was the one that kind of went off the path and she's like, guys, you got this part covered. I'm too talented. I'm going to go and be a graphic designer. And now she is, I'm just going to give her a little shout out because proud sister moment. She is now the assistant art director for Penguin Books. Penguin. Yeah, that's right. Penguin. She's a fucking badass. So anywho, it was in our blood (laughs) for me to become a therapist and do this work. Um, But because I was always kind of a natural at, you know, the therapy world and being a therapist. And even before I went to grad school, my dad would listen to the way that I would talk to friends on the phone. And as a therapist, he would look at me and be like, yeah, you, you are a therapist. And Because of that, it was easy for me to almost intellectualize my knowledge, my emotional intelligence, and not fully understand that despite all the years of therapy that I had been to, I still was in this very activated, anxious, sympathetic state, and I had a lot of unprocessed trauma. In all of those years of therapy, I had told my story about the leukemia, just like I told you today. I told the story but I was so disconnected from my body that I never had actually processed the pain in my body because knowing the story and processing the pain and the emotions around a story are completely different things. I can tell you in my head, oh, this is the trauma that happened. I almost died at age four and a half and my parents got divorced and then my mom had all these tumultuous relationships. I can say that. But if I'm not actually connecting into my body of what's happening for me, it's not actually getting processed through my body and my nervous system continues to stay dysregulated. So I'm going to go over the nervous system a little bit in the next episode, um, just because since I am a talker, my intention for this podcast is to keep the episodes relatively on the shorter end, just to make them a little bit more digestible. But for now, we will just say that I was in a very dysregulated state and it wasn't until I then found my now current mentor and coach who has trained me in her healing method and has done this healing method on me that I actually was able to process for probably the first time in my life, the pain that that inner two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, four four and a half-year-old, five-year-old was experiencing, but was in such survival mode that she didn't actually have space to feel it, space or safety to feel it. And so it took being able to get into my body to connect with that younger part of me that had gone through all of that at such a young age to really be able to process that pain. And it's something that I continue to process because Even to this day, a year and a half into doing this healing work, I voxer my coach and I say, wow, I I still don't think I fully have understood and processed the pain that has come with that time because it was such an incredibly traumatic time that I just kind of knew as part of my story, but I never really connected to the emotions of it. And that leukemia was a huge factor in developing this core wound, this core fear of abandonment, this core fear of being left behind. Because while I was supposed to be, you know, interacting with friends on the playground or, you know, being at home with my family, I was in hospitals and doctors. And, you know, of course there were times I was home with my family, but when I was home, I was sick and it was... You know, I have this vivid memory of my dad and I coming out to the living room and kind of telling my siblings the report of the night, like, oh yeah, she threw up this many times. We got this many hours of sleep. We gave her this medicine, you know, she's feeling this way. Like it was always just about the leukemia because it just dominated my life. Um, And when I was sick, I had my childhood best friend who I went to her house literally every day. She also helped, I truly, truly believe she also helped save my life because it was just the best medicine to be with her, to just act like a normal kid, to have playdates. And every time my dad would pick me up, I would literally throw a temper tantrum because I did not want to leave her house. (laughs) I was so attached. I was so just happy to be like enjoying life and not just focusing on feeling sick. But because my early you know, primitive years of development were not, you know, the typical three-year-olds living her best life. It really developed this fear of abandonment, this fear of being left out, this fear of being left behind. And that was showing up so strongly in all of my friendships, my relationships, the way I related to myself. And I didn't know that. I didn't know what that was until I learned about attachment theory and polyvagal theory and, Gabor Mate's work. And until my coach Yaro has introduced me to this whole world of healing, and it has completely changed my life and has completely changed the way in which I work with my clients. Because since I've been able to reparent that younger part of me, I call her little Ray and I have a picture of her right here. <laughs> she is a cutie and yeah, it's been just so life-changing, reparenting little Ray, tending to that anxious attachment wound, processing that stored pain, really noticing how I've been relating from little Ray rather than my adult self, because that is how she got her needs met. Even after leukemia, I had years and years and years of medical trauma where I would, because my immune system was so shot from the chemo, I would have all these other things come up and the doctors would always call me a medical mystery. I never, ever knew what was happening and it felt terrifying. And as a result, I developed this protector of need to know when I don't know something, it still feels in my body really scary because not only did I not know things that were happening internally in my family, like when my mom was breaking up with my stepmom, and, you know, I found out through an email and that's a story for another time, but Not knowing that, and then it leading to all these really scary shifts in our family, not knowing what was wrong. Every time I had this medical illness come up, I had a mysterious rash for like nine months, my junior year of college, before I was supposed to go abroad to Spain, no one could figure it out to this day. We still don't know what it was, but of course it was triggering because leukemia started with a rash. And so, you know, we ruled that out, but we didn't know what it was. I've had a chronic swollen knee my whole life. I mean, I can go on and on. There have been so many medical mysteries that no one has been able to figure out. And I've been treated for Lyme's disease three times. And then for them to tell me that I didn't actually have Lyme's disease, like there have been so many, I could do a whole episode on all of the examples of this, but the point is that that need to know protector became so strong because not knowing what was happening in my body and knowing if I was getting sick again to the point of, you know, my life being threatened, it felt terrifying. And so that has been one of my biggest protectors is control and the need to know. And it has shifted how I relate to everything. Because now I'm able to notice, okay, the need to know protector is coming up. And I know that this is little Rachel feeling scared. And so being able to tend to her, being able to co-regulate with my coach and gain support, it's everything. So that is a little bit about childhood. And essentially after that, you know, through college, I was a communications major Um, I went to Clark University in Western Massachusetts, which is a huge school for psychology. They didn't have a social work major, but I took a ton of psych classes. I realized I didn't want to major in it. Um, We even had a statue of Freud. (laughs) And after that, I had to decide, am I going to do this free fifth year program? They had a free master's program that I could have done for communications because I was a communications major and a Spanish minor, or am I going to go to grad school for clinical social work. And my dad was definitely pushing in the social work realm because he knew he was like, you are a natural. And for me, it always felt like this given like, okay, that's a safety net, but like, do I actually desire to do it? And I knew in me that part of it was aligned. Part of it was still feeling off. And that's because my soul knew that I was not meant to be in the traditional therapy world long-term. That was meant to be my starting off point. And then I was meant to transition into this healing coaching world. So I think I'm going to leave off there for now. And then next episode, I will pick up on more about how I actually ended up with this business and the whole journey that landed me here, which has been a wild one. Um, But it really is all about how, because I invested in my healing When I didn't even have the means to invest, like literally I had left the therapy world. I had quit both my therapy jobs. I was starting this coaching business program. Like I did not have the money to invest in a coach, but I did it because my soul was like, you need to heal this anxious attachment. You need to process this stored trauma. It is showing up everywhere and is becoming more and more obvious and apparent that it was showing up. So I did it. And fast forward a year and a half, here we are recording this podcast, creating my dream life, living what I've already created, which has been my dream life, living in San Diego, moving from New York, living in this beautiful apartment four blocks from the beach. And so my mission with this podcast is to show you that despite whatever trauma or wounding or hardships we go through, we have the power to choose how we're going to respond and relate to it. And when we actually choose to use it for our best interest, for our soul's evolution and journey, we get to reap the benefits of that. Because for so long in my life I attached onto cancer survivor as my identity because that is how I got attention, that is how I got my needs met. I would walk around town years later and someone would come up to me and be like, oh my God, you're the girl that had leukemia. It was such a small town. I was in the newspaper like all the fucking time. People knew my name. People knew my family. We had fundraisers. Like it became such a core part of my identity that I had to really look at how am I relating through this lens of sickness and how is that perpetuating me continuing to get sick? And it wasn't until I actually healed my medical trauma and chose to relate to it differently, and step into my full authentic self, which is an ongoing journey that I'm still doing, that I was able to create the life of my dreams and continue to do so and actually believe that it is so very possible. I used to relate to my dream life from a place of fantasy because it was too scary to actually take steps and do the necessary work to create it. And now I have done that, and this past year has been one of the most expansive years of my life. So, if you are listening to this, I want you to take a moment to just take a breath into your body and notice how all this is landing, how all of this is feeling for you. Let's take a breath together. And I want you to remember that no matter what you are leaning into working on right now. So whether it be trauma of your own, your own anxious attachment, your own anxiety, your own depression, whatever it is, that healing number one is so very possible. Number two is so very worth it. Literally the best thing you could ever invest in and creating your dream life is not just a fantasy, but can absolutely become a reality. But the first step is to create the safety, to feel it in order to heal it. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to my very first podcast episode. This has been so great. And I'm just so excited to be here. If you enjoyed this episode or found it helpful in any way, please feel free to screenshot and tag me on Instagram. You can find my handle in the show notes and come say hello. My DMS are always open. Feel free to share it with a friend that could benefit. And right now I am currently launching for my group, my women's group called come home to yourself which also happens to be my first tattoo. And this group is specifically for anxiously attached women because healing my anxious attachment wound again, has just completely shifted everything. It was consciously running my life for And if you've tried traditional talk therapy, if you've tried medication, if you've tried reading all the self-help books and you are still feeling anxious and stuck and noticing those controlling behaviors come up with your partner, that graspy feeling, just know that that might be your anxious attachment wound. And this group, I have used everything I've been through with my own anxious attachment to create and bird this group to help you heal yours so that you can really step into that secure attachment to that power, to that authentic self. And there is no work that is more worthwhile than doing the work to heal your anxious attachment so feel free to read more about it the link in my bio and my instagram and please feel free to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and thank you again for being here to feel it and heal it with me can't wait to chat with you guys again soon and i will see you in the next episode